This episode of See Here is brought to you by the Wilco Shriners Lounge. Come on down to the Shriners Lounge and see Willie Farr do his amazing chainsaw juggling routine. He juggles chainsaws. He juggles toasters. He juggles ex-wives. Next week, come back to see the amazing one-legged Wally Parr do his chainsaw routine. And you've heard it all on See Here. Episode 40 of the See Here podcast. My name is Morris, and on the left of my Skype screen is Tim Merrill. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. And good morning, good evening, and good night to Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Uh, yeah, good night for me, yes. There's a two Ronnies line hanging in there somewhere. Oh, sure. yes, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and on the right of my screen, is a masochist. And no, I'm not talking about the cinemasochist, although he is something of a cinema masochist, because this is his third time joining us on the See Here podcast, and we bow down to him at the Temple of Comedy. Mr. Frank Santo Padre of the Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal podcast. Good afternoon to you, Frank. Oh, it's about 5.15. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. Always a kick. Thank you for being had. And today's film was built with you in mind because basically today's film <laughs> is Broadway Danny Rose and you host a podcast which is really the podcast equivalent of this film Broadway Danny Rose. A bunch <laughs> of comedians talking around swapping old Hollywood stories and that's what we're going to do today. You seemed like the most apt guest that we could have. I've had two people from the film on my podcast. Will Jordan and Joe Franklin. Yep. Indeed. I was, I was trying to think for a second. Hang on. Danny Aiello wasn't in uh, Broadway, Danny Rose. I think a certain individual's uh, appendage has also made its presence known on the uh, show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. He has a That's... small role, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> he was sleeping. What we're going to do now is we're going to go to a quick break, play the trailer for the film. And then we're going to come back to uh, actually discuss in some detail not only Broadway Danny Rose, but anything else Woody Allen related that we can think of. You're listening to See Here with myself, Tim, Bernie and Frank. We'll be back in a moment. Yes, and what did your husband do? Um, little bookmakings, loan shocking, extortion, like that. Professional. Who are you? Danny Rose, theatrical management. Who else he handled besides Lou? One of the great balloon folding acts of all time. Do me a favor. I want you to bring Tina. But does she know she's married? That's why you gotta bring her. You can't ride two horses with one behind. Lou, she seems to be a little upset. Some guys shot him in the eyes. He's blind? Dead. He's dead, of course, because the bullets go right through. Tina, I love you. No, no, it's over. Are you going with him? She betrayed me with him. Danny Rose! Ah, gee, ah, We were into a complete type of situation. Like a console. He's a horrible, dishonest, immoral louse. And I say that with all due respect. 
Often stranger than fiction, history is full of amazing stories. It is our collective experience that has left us where we are today. I'm Rob Sims, host of History in the Making. History in the Making drops you into the past using storytelling, thorough research, and a little bit of production to let you live history. Join me in ancient sea battles, foreign markets, and political fights to see why we are today. After all, we live history. History in the Making can be found on iTunes, Google Music, and Stitcher. You can also stream it for free anytime off my website, which is hitmpodcast.com. Back to episode 40 of the See Here podcast. Broadway Danny Rose is the film that we're discussing this time around. And I think just for a moment here, I want to try and justify how I came to pick. This month is my pick for the film. There are some of you out there who are thinking, well, this isn't really a music-related film. But I guess in the past, having discussed Alice's Restaurant and Ishtar and Suburbia and Mystery Train, I sort of felt that this was a justifiable pick. And certainly with Alice's Restaurant and Suburbia, they were films where music was a central part of the culture that was represented. And certainly in Broadway, Danny Rose, which is, you know, surrounding the Borscht Belt of Upper New York State. And, you know, Lou Canova, you know, being one of the central characters in this film. I guess I got to feeling that we're celebrating as much about the culture of cabaret, of stand-up comedy and of that type of song so i guess you know this show is as much about celebrating the culture as well as the music from my perspective that was a justifiable pick anyway so i'm going to go around the table bernie i, I picked this film because you've gone and said that you watched it recently you've gone and watched the beautiful new arrow release of the film so i want to ask you what was your first time that you can recall seeing a woody allen film i think it was sleeper mm-hmm. i would have seen it around about 1970 79, 80 on television over here in the UK. So I would have been about nine or 10 years old. And certainly when I was younger, those earlier Zania films appealed to me more. We enjoy your films, particularly the early funny ones. If that kind of makes sense. Of course, by that point, he'd only made a couple of the more uh, adult movies, I guess. But yeah, I I think Sleeper was the one for me. It's kind of uh, similar to Bernie's. I remember uh, ABC television used to have films on every Friday and Saturday night. And I remember seeing, uh, I think it was Take the Money and Run. Nice. Mr. Miller. I am pointing a gub. No, that's gun. That's G-U-N. That's gun. I am pointing a gun at you. No, no. It looks like a B, but it's an N. And uh, Bananas. And I remember uh, seeing... when I was very young, seeing everything you wanted to know about sex, and all I remember was that just that giant floating boob chasing everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that was about it. But like Bernie said, you know, the Xavier comedies, and what was the one about the, the French Revolution? Uh, that was um, uh, Love and Death. Love and, Love and Death. Death. I remember seeing that, too. If by some miracle I'm not killed tomorrow, would you marry me? 
What do you think the odds are? Frank, you're so ensconced in New York City, the home of Woody Allen. Was he yeah. always part of your life? What was the first thing no, you recall seeing? That's a good question. You know, the first thing I remember seeing him in was not a Woody Allen movie. Oh, yeah. The first thing I remember seeing him in was the rather wretched Casino Royale. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. The first one, obviously, the the, uh, the comedy. Sellers? Yeah. Yeah, Sellers. And uh, I think that's the first time I saw him, and maybe the first or was aware of him and the first Woody movie I remember seeing oh gosh I'm, I'm gonna say it was Love and Death or Bananas mm-hmm. the first one I really that made a very strong that made a lasting impression on me was Annie Hall oh oh god Annie well oh well la di da la di da la la I was just going to ask, Frank, were you aware of his, you know, the fact that he'd written for a lot of, you know, sort of TV guys and so on prior to seeing his stuff? Or did that come later? He was, he was a performer. I mean, I think I knew him as a oh, television yeah, yeah. performer. Yeah. I mean, if you go back, if you do the research, I mean, he had TV specials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One, I think there's one where he's boxing a, God, there's some footage of him boxing a kangaroo, believe it or not. You know, it's generally known to the public that I'm a guy who can handle his fists pretty good. <laughs> Tonight on Hippodrome, you're going to watch me fight the Australian light heavyweight champion. <laughs> the things that he did back in those days. I mean, I, I remember him from early Carson shows. I was born in 61. So, I, you know, I guess what? Take the money and run is 69. Yeah. If I have that right. right. So I certainly wasn't going to the movies and watching at the age of eight or nine. So I, rem- I, I, rem- I remember him from I remember him as being a television person. I, I could be completely wrong, but I have a vague memory of Woody doing stand up smoking on television. But I just remember him holding a cigarette or something because I remember like a lot of guys would do stand up where they'd be, you know, smoking. Yeah. I can't remember. I was going to say, if you remember the very early scene in Manhattan, you see him smoking around a table. No. Mm. Oh, man. That is so mm. great. Mm. You don't smoke. No, I don't smoke. I don't inhale because it gives you cancer. But I look so incredibly handsome with a cigarette mm. that I can't not hold one. Shit, I don't know. I remember him doing stand-up on shows like The Hollywood Palace, which was a uh, kind of a, a precursor of Saturday Night Live almost, where they had a host, a different host every week, um, a variety show in the, in the heyday of variety shows. And I remember him on, on, on Merv, and I remember him on Cavett. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the first thing that made an impression on me, I, I, of course, I saw him in Casino Royale. I probably saw him in What's New Pussycat, right. too. But, but the first thing that I was 16 when I saw Annie Hall, and that's what had a real impact on me. Right. I think early on, I went to, like, I have two sisters, and one of them had a videotape of Take the Money and Run. So that is probably one of the earliest memories. And I think she might have also had Play It Again, Sam. So those mm-hmm. are the earliest two things I recall seeing. And I have vivid memories of laughing myself silly watching Woody marching in the marching band playing the cello. And I just thought, you know, the ridiculousness of that, that made a <laughs> oh, big... Oh, it's running ahead and setting up the, then setting up the right, stair. Right, right. Virgil steals to pay for cello lessons. And although he does not achieve greatness on the instrument, he is soon good enough to play in a local band. My other sister was an English teacher in, mm-hmm. in a high school, and she had been studying with her students the crucible. So she 
made me come and watch with her the front, which I sort of consider that was like this midpoint between the early comedic films. And I know this is directed by Martin Ritt. And it was, Martin Ritt, who was blacklisted himself. Right. Well, there was like, I think at the end of the film with the, the uh, credits, it's listed like all the members of the mm-hmm. cast and crew who were blacklisted back at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't recognize the right of this committee to ask me these kind of questions. And furthermore, you can all go fuck yourselves. But really, that that film, it's so well written. It actually looks written, although no one would have picked it at the time because it had only been making the zany comedic films. But if you compared it to what came afterwards, it played out like as if it was a Woody Allen script. And that is a film I've watched heaps and heaps and heaps of times. And so that was probably the first Woody Allen film I remember making a really strong impression on me. Uh, uh-huh. But probably the first two films, and I can't remember the order, but the first two films that I went to the cinema to see of Woody Allen was you know, Broadway Danny Rose or The Purple Rose of Cairo, which I know came a year later, but I might have seen it at a repertory cinema or something like that. But So, yeah, today's film is certainly something that was fairly early on in my decision to watch everything that came afterwards. We are a music film podcast, and I, I know there's the Ajitar relationship, you know, with uh, Nick Apollo Forte that we will get to, but let's talk for a few minutes just about the use of jazz in Woody Allen movies. And I know that the 80s were a time where you had your jukebox musical type films, you know, the, the soundtracks that were big either from television or from the movies where there was a whole bunch of established songs and you could go sell your cocktail or your Big Chills or your Tour of Duties or Goodfellas CDs. But in a way, I think Woody Allen, even though his albums weren't necessarily selling like those things, but in a way, he was a pioneer because he was championing you know, music of the era that he loved. You know, your swing jazz, your pre-bebop jazz. And like every one of his films, there's a bunch of really fantastic jazz songs that he championed. A lot of those films become extra special. So, you know, you, the use of Sing, Sing, Sing by Benny Goodman in like at least three films that I can recall. So, you know, yeah, he uh, loves to use that one. film that I love that uh, one of my favorites of his that I never gets enough recognition as far as I'm concerned was Zelig mm. and uh, Zelig you actually get to see him play in it absolutely so long since I've seen that one because you know when he's the chameleon and he's you know he's playing with the uh, Dixieland band and then but there's music that runs through the whole uh, film it's fantastic What's if it? you want to see a play, I recommend the documentary too, Wild Man Blues. Right. Yep, I have seen that. Uh, was it wasn't um, Woody Allen's band playing over the soundtrack of Sleeper? 
I don't know. Was that his? Did he play? Did he actually play on the soundtrack? I, I, I have a real. I'm ninety percent sure that it was his band that was playing the soundtrack of Sleep, but they weren't going to original recordings for that one. Preservation Jazz Band. I think so. I think that might have been his band. Okay. I don't know. Mm. That's a good question. You were mentioning before, Tim, about everything you wanted to know about love and sex. I love the opening credits, which was. I think that might have possibly been the last film that he did without the standard black background with white writing over the top and you saw all those rabbits and you got to hear Cole Porter's Let's Misbehave over the opening credits. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous, let's misbehave. When Adam won his hand, he wouldn't stand for teasing. I don't know, if, was that maybe like the, the first film where he actually started using a jazz jukebox, if you will, and he's used it ever since, with you know, a couple of exceptions, I guess. It, uh, was it, oh, what was the first Scarlett Johansson film? Uh, match Point, where he started using classical music. Right. Well, of course, then the Gershwin in, uh, in uh, Manhattan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but, but that, that was, he was still Love using... Death as well was uh, classical music, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. I just looked on IMDb as well. He did play clarinet on the score of Sleeper, so one would assume that uh, that was actually his band playing. Right. There you right. go. So, yeah. So, nice call, Morris. All right. Well, look, let's just talk a bit about the 80s films that Woody Allen sort of started because I know that whenever we sort of tend to read an article or think a lot about Woody Allen, obviously, you know, the big ones like Annie Hall and Manhattan come up as the first things that we think about. And, you know, they're brilliant films and obviously should be a lot in the conversation. But it seems to me that unlike some of the other iconic directors, I think Woody Allen was really on a roll through the 80s through to probably the mid-90s. I know that there are some people who sort of say, well, trying to think, you know, probably Crimes and Punishment might have been you know, the last great film and it was sporadic. Oh, crime, crime. Crimes and Misdemeanors. Uh, crimes and Misdemeanors. Excuse me. Sorry, I'm, I'm thinking Dostoevsky. But I think the last, for me, Mighty Aphrodite was like as much of a belly laugh as anything that he'd done before. And that was like 96. Really, I, th I think everything he did through the 80s into the 90s, it was a real purple patch. And Broadway, Danny Rose, is certainly a, a large part of that. It's interesting you say that, Morris, because it's probably one of his not least known films, but uh, least talked about and least appreciated. It's only from that period, I would imagine. I wonder whether that's the case now. I know for a long time it was sort of dismissed as light fluff, but I, I guess through the world of podcasting and more articles on the internet that I've seen, I think Broadway Danny Rose has come back into the conversation. It's still sort of being said, oh, it's not as good as Annie Hall and, and whatnot, but I think it has become a lot more appreciated in recent years. I think it's one of Alan's favorites of his films. I remember reading that in several places. I remember reading um, an interview with, I don't know if you guys know, a, a British comedian called Harry Hill. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but I, I read an interview with him a while ago talking about some of his favourite comedy films and uh, Broadway Danny Rose was his favourite. And uh, he said the reason he liked it so much is that it's a comedian's movie. It's a comedy film for comedians. And it right. just, you know, makes perfect sense in that respect. So, Right. If you look at it, you know, from a certain perspective, the whole film is almost like this long joke, like a shaggy dog story. Absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Do you think this yeah. qualifies as a screwball comedy? Well, it has elements of that. Yeah. I sort of looked this up because there was this thing in my head. I thought, you know, male and female with some sexual tension 
but does is that enough to qualify it as a screwball comedy? And the definition that I read was that it, you have a, an emasculated man, a strong woman, going through a series of predicaments to make him look a bit of a doofus. And there's certainly, I guess, from the part of the film onwards where Woody comes to pick up the Mia Farrow character at her place and they go to the big mafia party, the road scenes where they're being chased by the brothers of, of the lovelorn guy. Your brother is soft. He's sensitive. Yeah, her husband had no respect for us either. Carmen Vitali, he was no damn good. He cheated us. And she's no better. She said one thing to my face and she betrayed me. It's the lover. He's got her under his spell, Johnny. We'll fix him. We'll chop his legs off. No. We'll kill him. I don't trust him. But not Tina. Please, not Tina. Get rid of the lover. Get rid of the lover and you get her back. He's got the evil eye. Il malocchio. You understand, figlio mio, il malocchio. Mama, he's a dead man. Johnny Rispoli, isn't it? And it's uh, Vito and Carmine Rispoli are his brothers, I think. (laughs) He's a poet. Yeah. (laughs) Your brother is too soft. Well, I think when you talk about screwball comedies, I think that a lot of Woody's earlier films, or a portion of his films, they always dealt with him being put in a different place that's kind of outside of his element. That's always been the case, you know, where how Woody tries to fit into a new element or how he, he, he tries to kind of convince everyone else he belongs there or, you know, he knows what he's doing, but he's, you know, way out of his league or he's just put in a situation that's kind of a compromising uh, scene. That's where the humor comes through. And I mean, you know, it, it's it's like with this film where he's mistaken for this guy and uh, for being the uh, the Lothario that's taking uh, Mia away from uh, Johnny. And, you know, and he's just saying, hey, I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy. But everybody's thinking he's the guy. And, and that's where all the humor comes out of it. Right. It's just the beard. Yeah. Are you finished? Yeah. 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 Because I have the greatest Danny Rose. The framing device of the film is a group of stand-up comics who I gather were friends of Woody's sitting in Carnegie Deli telling Danny Rose stories. So i got to ask you, Frank. Including his his manager is also in that scene, uh, uh, Jack Rollins, Woody's manager, who the character is is reportedly based on, but I don't know how how much truth there is in that. So was that a thing... Frank for uh, you know comics to hang around the Carnegie Deli. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think it was. I mean, those guys were all they were all Borschfeld comics. Uh, Sandy Barron and Jackie Gale. I don't know if you've ever seen Barry Levinson's Tin Men. Oh yeah. Uh, that's Jackie a great film. Gale. Yeah, Jackie Gale just about steals that one. Um, right. The late, the late Sandy Barron, Howard Storm, of course, Will Jordan, who was the preeminent Ed Sullivan impersonator, and and uh, Corbett Monica. Also, everybody's gone except yeah. for Will Jordan and Howard Storm. And Rollins himself, I believe, was a performer before he before he did. I, I'll I'll double check on that. But before he became a theatrical manager. But I I think that uh, there's a tradition of comedians in diners and delis holding court. At, at a table. There's there's one up here on the Upper East Side where I live called the Green Kitchen. 
and it was near the old Catcher Rising Star. And if you go in that diner now, which is about three blocks from my home, you will see photographs, you'll see headshots on the wall of, of all of these comedians, not only from the 80s, but the 70s and the 60s, because they would perform at Catch and then walk to the only thing that was open, which was this little uh, greasy spoon on the corner. So that, that's been around for a long time, has it? Yeah, yeah. There's a diner too here. There's a, the comic strip in New York is still open, and there's a diner on the next block. And you'll see you, if you uh, certain nights of the week, if you go in there, you'll see comics that have just performed mm-hmm. at the comic strip because it's one of the few. Uh, if somebody's doing a late set on a weekend, yeah. the diner, the diner or the coffee shop is the only thing open. Right. The Carnegie closed, didn't it, a little while ago? It's not around anymore. Carnegie closed a couple of months ago, and it broke my heart and the, the heart yeah. of a lot of our longtime New Yorkers. Something I wanted to ask you guys about the comedian sitting down and sharing all the swapping stories and that. I, I got a little bit of a feel of almost like the aristocrats from that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this would have been like, a very different film. No, I mean in the sense that it's like, oh, I got a, I got a Danny Rose story. No, I got a Danny Rose story. I got a Danny. You know, it's like every everybody was riffing on their their own take of Danny Rose, and I thought that was almost kind of like the aristocrats where it's almost like the same kind of not exactly the same but yeah. i just had a kind of feeling like that you know i like as they're um, as they're building up to telling the danny rose stories they're just telling each other gags and doing impressions and stuff right. yeah I'm gonna go home and change my suit yeah you kind of get the impression that woody probably just said to them yeah just just you know do what you want to do for a little bit and then we'll get to the the, the kind of scripted part you know because mm-hmm. they're all kind of trying to get their little you know little piece of their acting yeah and so. if you google those guys corbett monica was an italian comic who was a, a all of those guys played played the borscht belt played the circuit jackie gale sandy barron yeah. uh howard storm who's still around actually i should try to get him on my show they're, they're the perfect framing device to talk about a guy who is a theatrical manager who used to be a comic, who's a failed comic himself. Right. Yeah, they're almost like a, uh, a kind of Greek chorus, aren't they, narrating mm-hmm. the story? Yeah, A little bit. You know, you, the more you read about the film, he talks about, uh, Alan talks about it kind of growing all, almost improvisationally, like the whole thing. There's a rest, There's another famous restaurant in, in, here in New York called Rayo's, R-A-O. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. No. Very no. F- legendary Italian eatery and one of the owners was a lady named Annie Rayo, who apparently spoke just Ooh. like just like Tina. Yeah. And and I've read interviews with Alan, with Woody, where he's saying that, that you know, it was a lark, that he wanted to play a different kind of character that he'd played before. Not a, not a schlemiel, but a, uh, but a low-class character. And she wanted to play a character. She wanted to do something she'd never done before. And she was loosely basing her performance on this restaurateur, this woman, Annie Rayo. Wow. Right. So the, so yeah. the movie has a lot of, it has a lot of New York roots. It's interesting that you say that Woody wanted to play something that was different and while certainly you know he's still playing something of the schleb and for I don't know whatever the umpteenth time in a film he says I want to interject something at this juncture sweetheart may I make one statement here and I don't mean to be didactic nor facetious in any way but his character in this film I sort of felt was a lot more altruistic like normally he's very much of a narcissist and he's looking after his own ass and mm-hmm. Danny Rose all he wants to do is look after his clients. I, I sort of remembered yesterday thinking about Annie Hall. Remember there's that moment where I can't quite remember why it is, but there's this moment where he's sitting, listening to some really lousy comedian tell a joke and he's sitting there yeah. thinking, oh my God, this guy is terrible. Jesus, this guy's pathetic. Look at him mincing around. Boy, thinks he's real cute. Do you want to throw up? Got to get out of here i can't wait to get out and he's 
keeps his smile plastered on his face, but he's hearing it. And yet, if the same comedian was there telling the same joke to Broadway Danny Rose, Danny Rose would be saying, what you need to do is you need to smile <laughs> star strong. You know, I don't see you telling this joke in joints. I see you telling this joke in Caesar's Palace. You know, he's far more encouraging of his clientele and the beautiful scene at the end of the film this guy would have been like a a prince in his apartment on the surface he looks like the same sort of woody allen character that we get in so many of his other films he's really at at his core his very nature is a very different character this time around What's kind of you funny know. is the lengths he goes to kind of satisfy, you know, his client. And he goes out, you know, and his client says, you know, I can't do my show unless I have this certain kind of gum. So when he yeah. goes out and gets the gum, and unfortunately that gum gets stuck on his shoe, he wants to shake her, but he just can't shake her. You know, yeah. he's, no matter how much he tries, you know, she's stuck to him and he's just like, oh, shit, what do I do now? You know, like it's probably his most likable character, you know, his most. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as, as, as Bernie said, his he's the cockeyed optimist, his, his most. His most most optimistic character, sir. Considering he's such a fatalist, uh, yeah. uh, in, in in so many of his other films, right. A lot of people talked about this film in a way as nostalgic, sort of paying tribute to Woody's comic roots. But in, I was sort of thinking that in a way, this film is maybe not quite anti-nostalgia, but it sort of works against the whole idea of being nostalgic for its own sake. Uh, I mean, there's all these lines in the film about, oh, yeah, he's really riding the nostalgia boom. And yet, because Lou Canova is really seen as like a one-trick pony, as a one-song singer who had this song for 15 minutes, you know, many years ago, I sort of question whether it really is like doe-eyed nostalgia for its own sake. It's certainly not necessarily looking to the future, but it's let's tell these stories and then we'll get on with it. Uh, you know, even with Tina Vitale saying, you know, get what you want out of this life and just get on with it. You know what my philosophy of life is? Oh, I can imagine. It's over quick, so have a good time. You see what you want, go for it. Don't pay any attention to anybody else. And do it to the other guy first, because if you don't, he'll do it to you. She's the fatalist or... Yeah, yeah. There's nothing nostalgic about it. It's like, get your 15 minutes. If you can make some money, go for it. You know, get a new agent, do what you're going to do for now. And then lose nostalgic boom doesn't really turn out to be, we presume, what they thought it was going to be. So I think in a way, it's... If not quite anti-nostalgia. I think you can read it both ways because Danny and his whole reason for doing what he does is because he's part of that. Mm. You know, he obviously grew up with, obviously reading a lot into this, but, you know, I think the film's kind of a tribute to the, you know, the kind of Borscht Belt and those kind of old comedians that Woody grew up with. And uh, it's, you know, it's that kind of warmth and nostalgia coming from him. And Mm. the characters who don't have that so much kind of don't fare so well in the film. And it's only through his kindness and his optimism and the fact that he is a nice, warm guy that he kind of offers the hand to her at the end almost with that that scene you were talking about. So Mm. I I don't know. I think you could read that both ways. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. I don't know. I don't see it as kind of a nostalgia per se as I see it as that... You know, there was a time when everything was the same and everything could kind of be was malleable and everything could kind of be controlled. And and then when things change, you know, you have to deal with change and you have to deal with evolution or, or just the, accepting the fact that there's things you can't control. When Woody comes up at the beginning and he's talking to the guy about, you know, hey, man, why don't you book birds? Why don't you book this? Why don't you book that? And he's like, we don't do that anymore. We don't, you know, it's like things change, you know, and he has to learn how to not rely on the past or not just rely on, you know, the things that 
you know, he could control the things he could manage because, you know, life sometimes is not manageable. You can be informed by the past and still manage to go sure. forward, which is what I think that's kind of where the ending leaves it, I think. Right. And yet, like his character all throughout the film, we get just like a glimpse, just enough of Danny as a stand-up comic from, you know, an earlier period. You know, he's doing the, the joke, how old are you, sweetheart? <laughs> What's your star yeah. sign? Let me, let me ask you a question, sweetheart. How old are you? Just, just tell me how old you are. 81. 81 years old. Isn't that fantastic? No, really. She's 81. It's fantastic. Unbelievable. You don't look a day over 80. And all throughout the film, to get himself out of an awkward situation or to start up a conversation, how old are you, darling? What's your star sign? Uh, it's, it's like he's never stopped being that stand-up comic. Yeah, and he never further, stops performing, does he? And the further he goes on in the film, we realise this is not working. You know, he's at the party where he's, he's trying to get Tina, and when he's in this awkward situation where her scorned lover, I think he's already taken the poison... Danny Rose calls up to her, calls up to his mother. Uh, don't worry. What, what what star sign are you? How old are you, darling? <laughs> and that's sort of where I get the anti nostalgia sort of right. feel from because it's showing no, that doesn't work anymore, Danny. Well, that's kind of like what I was saying about you know trying you know he he lived in an environment where he tried to control everything you know or every he could manage it and then when things are out out of uh, out of hand he's just like no man you know you, you you're on your own you're flying by the seat of your pants now you got to figure this out can i just uh, go off on a little tangent here you're talking about the uh, the party that woody's character danny follows um mia's character to that scene that whole scene at the party is indicative of something that this film does really really well in that i think the extras casting and the way that the film is shot just loads and loads of really interesting faces, lots of close-ups of faces, real-looking people, strange-looking yeah. people. It's Fellini-esque. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's a beautiful film as well. It's beautifully shot. It looks fantastic. Jordan Willis. Yeah, he did a bang-up job. There's the scene where um, they've just gotten off the boat after crossing the Hudson, and they're just mm -hmm. kind of walking along and talking, and the camera tracks along. And you've just got this old pier and fog sort of enveloping right. them. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. Beautiful mm -hmm. to look at. I'm reminded of the two guys who are tearing up the money. I've been tearing doing. money since my first Holy Communion. Get it? Here, man. Here. $10. Here. I don't care. Here. Yes. A... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> mere fascination. It's a mere, yeah. it's a mere fascination. All the conversations he has at that party with the, um, he's talking with that guy about uh, the comic he saw in Atlantic City. Yeah. The dirty comic. Thing in, yeah. And he says, well, if it's old-fashioned to, like, Mr. Milton Burrow or Mr. Danny Kay. You know, they call me old-fashioned, but but if it's old-fashioned to, like, Mr. Danny Kay, Mr. Bob Pope, Mr. Milton Burrow, you know what I mean? Then, then all right, then I'm old-fashioned. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the, the, right. the smile on that other guy's face is just, oh, perfect. So good. He's he's an idealist, you know? He's a, he's, a, he's an yeah. innocent... He's a, his character is an innocent surrounded by cynicism and surrounded by, by harsh reality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, there's uh, the one scene when Tina goes to his house and she says, hey, man, like, look at this place. Like, you're like a loser. And he's like, no, you know, he says, I could become famous overnight. You know, like I could I could change, you know, like everything's everything's going to change instantly. Don't worry about it. You know, he's a dreamer. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, that's one of the things that's so sweet about the film, too, because there there are so many people like that in show business. Lifetime believers against all odds, and that's that's one of the things that's that's so damn endearing about him. Mm -hmm. But I think for some people, that's how things happen. 
is when, you know, people will refuse to give up a dream. You know, sometimes people are saying, this will never be made, this will never happen, you know, there, there's no place for you. I, look at a guy like Charles Bronson with a, you know, like a chiseled catfish face and look, you know, look what he was able to do and make a <laughs> career out of, initially you see that guy and you think, there's no way you'd be a leading man in a film or something, but no, I mean, you know, you, you, you follow the dream. One day you will hold my caramilla a child of your own, and I pray. Could I um, bring up at uh, this point Nick Apollo Forte? Because mm. I, I, nope. I did a bit of research. Apparently so, yeah. I, I did some research, yet. checked his, his own website and so on, and there's not a huge amount of information about him out there. I, I think he was essentially just playing himself, and this pretty is much. pretty much what he does, yeah. There was a record store here in Times Square, speaking of uh, New York landmarks that are gone, like the Carnegie called Colony Records. Oh. And it was adjacent to the world-famous Brill Building. And uh, Julia Taylor, was the, Woody's, Woody's longtime casting agent, was was in Colony Records and, and happened upon one of Nick Apollo Forte's albums. And that's right. how he, that's, that's reportedly how he was cast. Oh. Apparently, uh, the, they, the people, they saw a bunch of other people for that role, and it's actually yeah. quite amazing who was up for it. Apparently, yeah. uh, if I have this right, Sylvester Stallone tried out for it. Robert De Niro. Yeah. I think uh, Robert Goulet and, and Steve, um, Roth. Steve Roth. If uh, Stallone had done it, if Stallone had done it, it would have been like that. What was that movie he did? That comedy. Uh, Par- oh no, I was going to say Paradise Alley is the one where you he's mean the right? tune, isn't it? You mean Rhinestone with Dolly Parton? No, the, oh, no, that's the, the, one. the gangster film that he did. Oh, the com- Oscar. Oscar. Yeah, it would have been singing Oscar though, did he? No, but it would have been something like Oscar. He knew enough to cast an unknown in that part. You needed one. Right. Yeah. Well, the disbelief that you weren't looking at me, a pharaoh under this, and Woody Allen was enough, you know, without having to look at Sly Stallone and believe him as a sure, lounge singer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and the, the interesting thing uh, is that Nick Apollo Forte's career, since then, he's I think he's done like one television appearance or maybe one other movie. But I, I read somewhere that he was actually offered like a, you know, a small role, probably as a nightclub singer in The Sopranos, and he turned it down. So because he didn't language. use the language, he didn't like the yeah. uh, the profane right. language. Apparently, right. that's, yeah. that's right, the right. story. He has twenty two grandkids. I read. Wow. Speaking of language, seeing him up there singing, I was I was watching the film thinking, he looks like somebody. He looks like somebody, and then finally it hit me. He looks like Tony Clifton. How you doing? All right. Nice to see everybody out here. Everybody feeling good. <laughs> that's funny and I thought yeah man like you know I a mean, I'll, yeah a little bit it's the mustache that's what it was considering um, he's not uh, he wasn't an actor or, or anything he was you know a performer obviously but not not an actor he knocks it out of the park in this he's absolutely fantastic mm. he just nails it I think well I think there's some directors that know how to cast or how to guide you know non-actors through films yeah. in many cases like that's what you need is you need the people that are just naturally themselves that they're not trying to be anybody else and i've seen several films where it's just worked so well you know because the people just play it perfectly pitch perfect well like you say it's the right casting isn't it it's the right person yeah yeah i think turned out to be a natural actor too i think that was the pleasant surprise yeah they said they said he gave a great read so after they'd seen all these famous names this guy was the real deal so that must have appealed to him on some level i'm gone this guy's actually it he's the bad lounge singer right (laughs) why hire danny aiello or robert de niro to play one right so as you actually already existed as a song even before the film they just brought that into the film didn't they yeah 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 apparently he wrote something called the scungili 
song, which I love. <laughs> so what? What's that about? That, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to assume it's about octopus <laughs> or squid. I guess no. I guess just squid is Scungilia squid. Yeah. There's a question I wanted to ask about the music, and this is my naivety, but to me, there's always been kind of this similarity between a lot of Jewish klezmer music and Italian traditional Italian. I mean, like, a lot of the songs, to me, seem like one and the same. And I think Woody blends that in the film. Because it's, it doesn't seem like they're two different things. It seems like everything just runs right through. and, and yeah, it just it's seems, a perfect fit. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that thought hadn't occurred to me. That's actually a really fantastic observation. But what we notice, so like, not so much in the chorus of Ajita, but in the... In the verse of Ajita, it's in a minor key. And a lot of klezmer music, I've often sort of noticed, it has that wonderful ability to take tunes that are in a minor key and still sound incredibly joyous. And that's what Ajita does in this film. So, yeah, that's that's actually a really, really good observation. Well, a lot of the rhythms, I mean, when you hear it, it's just like that... You know, like, it's just... I'm like going, wait a minute, man. Like, this is almost, one, in, like I say, one in the same, you know? it's just, But I love it. I love all of it. I mean, it's fantastic. And give Dick Hyman credit, too, because he takes those two songs, My, my Bambina and, oh, and, yeah. and, and Ajita, and they come back, variations yes. on those songs. Yeah. Threaded throughout the film, uh, very expertly. Credit out there to the accordion player, a guy called Dominic Cortez. If uh, uh, Frank, I know you're a Billy Joel fan. He was the uh, the, squeeze, oh, I know. the squeeze box player on scenes from an Italian restaurant. An Italian restaurant. Mm. <laughs> I'm familiar with him. Right, right. Is is he still around? Does does he still? I don't. I don't know. That's a good question. I'll, I'll look it up after we sign off. But the music is fun. I mean, the mu- the music keeps things moving. Right. It certainly does. Actually, I mean, we often sort of go and wonder, you know, how much effect the music plays on a film. And I know that it's been like a an internet phenomenon in recent years to recast trailers. So I think, you know, Mary Poppins as a horror movie and Taxi Driver as a romantic comedy. And it's all usually due to the music. There are moments in this film where, the, you know, they would have been less comedic without the use of Ajita in the background. <laughs> It's a lot of traditional Italian music, too. I'm thinking of the traditional song, Feniculi, Fenicula. When I was in public school, we actually had to learn to sing that song. I think it's used in the closing credits. It is. It's right at the very end, yes. Yeah. All I know is he's a big talent and he's playing joints. Joints? What do you mean? He was lucky he could get you. When I met him, he was still singing Feniculi, Fenicula. You know, again, it, the, the character supposedly, and I've been doing research on this, they say that, that Jack Rollins, Woody's manager, was an inspiration because he managed Harry Belafonte. That's, that's it, and yes, Harry yeah. Harry Belafonte reportedly, and I, you, know, you can piece this together if you want, reportedly left him for a more successful manager and that that was some of the basis of this story. And I don't know. And I remember years ago hearing the name of another manager. I spent about a half an hour before I jumped on with you guys researching it. And for the life of me, I couldn't find it. 
somebody named Dave something. Huh. And if you guys can find it or if any of your listeners can dig it out, I'll be very, very impressed. That that Danny Rose was a was a composite uh, of, of of several different people. Right. And one of these okay. guys was a failed theatrical manager named Dave somebody. And uh, I can't find his name on the internet for the life of me. So I'm going to have to ask some people who would know. I'll ask well, Will Jordan. Well, I think well. Jack Rollins turns up, by the way, too. I think Jack Rollins' mother is one of the balloon folders. Oh, nice. <laughs> If you take my advice, I think you're going to become one of the great balloon folding acts of all time, really. Because I don't see you just folding these balloons in joints. You know, you're going to, you listen to me, you're going to fold these balloons at universities and colleges. That's it. You sure, uh, actually, Frank, you sure she's not the um, the hypnotized lady? I don't know. I, again, I have to go to I, The balloon folders were a married couple, weren't they, I think? Relying on my memory. Speaking uh, of uh, speaking of unfolding balloons, we have to bring up Uncle Milty. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. We're, we're not a family podcast to the last time That's I checked. So, so um, Frank, do you want to sort of you know, tell our listenership, you know, who may not have had the good taste to listen to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal? You podcast? mean they don't know this? This is a, this is not common knowledge by this what? point. What the baby's arm? No, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't <laughs> until I listened to your podcast. Baby's arm holding an apple. A baby's arm holding an apple. <laughs> uh, <laughs> If you don't know this, shame on you, because it's showbiz, it's showbiz history, uh, lore 101. But 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 Uncle Milty was famous for having the largest endowment in show yeah. business, and he that would was, show that up. wasn't an endowment of the arts. Not an endowment of the arts. <laughs> he, 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 the, although the Chubb Group may have may have underwritten. The um, that's a, that's a PBS joke that plays that would play I think in America. It was the inspiration guys, for Dumbo. I hope you guys got it. Yeah, we've had several people on the podcast who've told us that Milty actually showed it to them. What what was the Saturday Night Live writer Alan Zweibel right. claims claims to have seen it in person? At least one other person. I can't. Uh, uh, we have Tony Roberts on the podcast Monday. Speaking of Woody Allen, by the way, right. Oh wait! Uh, but, we have we have from and he and he when he worked with Milty, Milty dated his mom, oh Milty, Tony Roberts' mom. So, but he never saw it. We asked him. You know, you know what's really funny is actually, <laughs> as we ask everybody, we we talked referenced it a little bit earlier when they were saying about you know the dirty comedy. And he says, you know, some guy comes out with a cigar box with a hole yeah, in it yeah. and sticks his thing through it. And I was thinking, Milton. <laughs> humor? You know what's interesting about Milton in the film is he doesn't speak. Yeah, he, right. Both right, of right. his scenes are, are, are MOS scenes. You see him on the float and drag. Yep. And then you see him in Times Square and, and there's a voiceover. Right. And you see him, he's oh. in the uh, the Waldorf as well, isn't he? And he's, he's sat next to Howard Cosell for some reason. That's right. Uh, Sandy Barron doing the voiceover of how, uh, you know, Uncle Milton needs an act for his his nostalgia yeah, yeah. but it's great to see him in there just his presence even though he doesn't speak just his presence gives his presence gives this film which is about old-time comedy it gives it something it gives it a little right. extra gravitas absolutely and you know the other guy that really came up to my mind when i was watching this film was your friend drew friedman i saw so many shots in the film that would look almost like drew's illustrations like like with yeah. the guy sitting around the deli and there was just certain faces like bernie had said too that just pop up and i just thought yeah yeah yeah. That looks like a Drew Friedman drawing, like you know this well, person. Drew like, has those books, the old Jewish comedians books. Right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. They 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 nick somebody nicknamed Drew. I think it was. I'm trying to think. It was Newsweek or Vanity Fair. They called him the Vermeer of the Borscht Belt. 
That's it, yeah. <laughs> Which there, um, apparently there's a documentary in production, isn't there? And there is. The name there of is. it, yeah. yeah. It's made, being made by our friend Kevin Doherty, friend of the podcast. Oh, okay. So that is, that is in uh, in development. So, yeah. Yeah, you, you you look at Broadway, Danny Rose, and you think of that. You know, you can smell the corned beef coming off the screen. Wow. Oh, they, absolutely. They, they say that about Drew's drawings. Right. Mm-hmm. What we need is a, a graphic novel adaption of Broadway, Danny Rose. Drew, oh, I love uh, Drew Friedman. That would be astounding, I, wouldn't it? I'd kill, I'd kill to do that. That, to write that <laughs> that'd be perfect you and Drew you do it yeah, we collaborate on smaller things but never a, never a book so do you think a film like this could have been made nowadays were the 1980s just distance enough from that whole Bosch belt era that enough people remembered it a good question I don't know uh, I, I, I think I, if it was it would be probably out in Vegas either Vegas or Los Angeles and they would they would totally you know take it out take it away from New York and now it would be your agent on a cell phone and you know it, it would just totally wouldn't be the same right you're so right you know his films were always made for for niche audiences anyway though mm-hmm. you yeah. know i would say I, on one hand you want to say well it was 84 so you weren't that far removed from the borscht belt incidentally there's a there's a new book uh, uh, by a photographer named marissa scheinfeld i'm giving a plug to someone i don't know because the book is terrific it's called the borscht belt revisiting the remains of america's jewish vacation land and what she did is she she went to all the old hotels she went to grossingers and uh, i'm trying to some of the names of them are jumping out of my head and basically she took photographs of what was left and it's it's just heartbreaking to see what's left of these see if you guys can pick up the book because uh so, it's it's a heartbreaking history. Has she gone and sort of documented that a lot of these hotels no longer exist or that they just don't went, put up yeah, entertainment anymore? She went and photographed what was still standing. Wow. You know, empty rooms and buildings in disrepair and empty swimming pools. Hmm. Just history um, left to roll. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's uh, it's sad, but yeah. uh, but but it's part of this. It's part of this history. I think it's you know it uh, it relates to this topic. Uh, so, what did the book imply about what started the decline of uh, of the Borscht Belt? I don't know. I think television had something to do with it. I'd maybe assume that uh, you know it's a generational thing as well. Older yeah. people yeah. who were you know that that was where they went for their holidays and entertainment. You know, their children were doing other things and going other places, and it was maybe seen as old fashioned and old hat i don't know yeah sure um, we, we may have her on, we may have her on the show for a mini episode that we do so perhaps she'll explain it but if you get if you get your hands on the book i mean it's like you're looking at, at pictures of chernobyl right? oh, i mean it's, it's, it's yeah. these place ghost towns the fact that some of the structures are still standing and she, she, you see the old bowling alley or yeah. the old auditorium or the old swimming pool where you know yeah. these tumblers tumblers people like mel brooks back in the day worked mm-hmm. so were yeah. they literally kind of out in the middle of nowhere it was literally just the hotel resort yeah, mm. yeah and the poker nose and up upstate new york you know what's yeah. what's 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 left of them i mean the ones that haven't been raised wow. you know it's the same way i see old theaters and drive-ins you know what, what's oh, left yeah. of them it just, it just breaks my heart i can't i can't even look at that stuff anymore it just brings tears yeah. to my eyes i said movie theaters are on the endangered list now the Ziegfeld theater here in new york which was a, an institution closed right it's it's uh it's going yeah. away i'm not sure if weinstein's majestic bungalow colony is still standing by the way <laughs> from the movie but i hear it's a classy place majestic bungalow colony is that a euphemism again for milton bill uh, no it's the, it's, when he, it's when he's trying to book lou and the guy says i don't we, we don't have, he's a he's a washed up has-been singer that's right uh. That he said that he's trying to sell him on the blind. Is it the blind xylophone player? And he says, "Mike, that's right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't want to see a blind act, right?" 
I always thought that Letterman riffed on all that stuff with his stupid pet tricks and his stupid people tricks. A little bit. Another guy managed by Jack Rollins, by the way. So maybe there was uh, a And then he says, hey, Weinstein's guys. majestic bungalow colony is a classy place, which is one of my favorite lines <laughs> of the movie. I'd like to help you, Danny. But Weinstein's majestic bungalow colony is a classy place, and I need a classy act. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of great little uh, New York character actors uh, uh, showing up, too. It's a period film about New York at that time, even though he's trying to make a film. He says he set out to make a film about New York in the 1950s, and it's very strange because the film is timeless. Right. And he's yeah. walking past at one point a marquee, a movie marquee, and you see a Halloween movie. Right, that's right, Halloween right. 3, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's clearly not the 1950s, and if you look at Burl, who's clearly in his 70s or late 60s, it's clearly not the 1950s. So it's, right. a, it's one of those strange films that that is time that, that has no time period and then there's part of it too that reminds me um not of new york city but it reminded me of new orleans when they were in that giant warehouse with all oh, the, yeah, with, the parade with the stuff yeah that um that scene struck me as as frank said earlier that's a little kind of fellini-esque isn't it it's a little right. surreal ones yeah kind of out of place with the rest of the film but works because of that in a way sure well he, he needed something right i mean he's sitting there and he's plotting the screenplay and he's he's coming up on the third act and he needs he needs a big piece of business sure yeah yeah well that's, that's the kind of adventure isn't it they have yeah, he needs he needs yeah. to make the adventure bigger and grander somehow so that's that's what he came up with in that regard it's part road movie then a little bit yeah kind of and, and, and given, <laughs> given that the road movie is always like a, a metaphor a, a character's journey Really, well, that makes sense as well. This is more about Mia Farrow's personal journey, and uh, you know, she goes from being you gotta live for yourself, you gotta do things for yourself. I say grab it until you know, her, her final yeah. feelings of, of guilt at the end of the film, and Danny sort of forgives her, which is you know, not really a woody, a very Woody Allen thing in uh, from previous films that adventure that you mentioned is part of mm. that part of that road i guess you could call it a road movie and you could call it a screwball comedy and you could call it a character study mm. a character oh, piece yeah. very much it's all i think it's all those things and a love and a love story too yeah yeah oh i, I mean wanna... you don't really he doesn't stay with it long enough to for you to actually see them get together but i but it's implied mm. absolutely yeah yeah which is brilliant filmmaking unto itself yeah i mean a kiss yeah. would have served him i mean you can you the you you, you you, it's hard enough to wrap your mind around these two characters actually falling for one another, but just the just the fact that he holds on that on that last shot and leaves it to your imagination yeah. is so is so well done. At that point, it doesn't even matter whether what happens after the film is whether they have a romantic relationship or not. It's you know at that point there's been forgiveness and that they've got a friendship yeah. it, it the romance would almost in a way sort of think would be an easy way out would be a disappointment just the fact sure. that you know, she's accepted what she's done is wrong he's forgiven her and it, it just right. sort of I, works really nicely you're right i don't i don't think we can assume that it even blossoms into a romance there's something really unique about like you know just in the last couple of minutes about what you've been saying about all these elements coming together and if you had asked someone else another director to kind of make a film similar to this and put all those elements together i don't think they could even come close i mean i think the way woody weaves it all together is very unique unto himself i don't think that it's the way he does it seamlessly i don't think that it's really um something that can be duplicated it doesn't feel forced at all does it it all no. works perfectly and speaking of that run through the streets, I want to direct you guys to, after we get off, check out a website called Vanishing New York. 
And then when you get to the website, punch in Broadway Danny Rose, because what someone has done is taken the time and trouble to match scenes from frames from the film oh, with oh. what, what, what those New York streets look like today. Uh-huh. Wow. So you can see where the, the oyster bar that was on the corner that's near right. the same block as the Carnegie, and that's still there, but all the stores in the, in the middle of the block have changed. Oh, and they, right. it's, it's a fun website that does that wow. with several movies, like The Apartment. I- I think Annie Hall. I've seen something like that with, um, do you know the photographer Frank Ouija? Of course. Yeah, well, Ouija is somebody, there was a website, I forget who did it now, but where they actually split the screen and half the screen was the Ouija photo and the other half, the right side of the screen was present day. Oh, interesting. So they actually showed where there was a building on fire and people were jumping out of the building or where there was like a gangland shooting that Ouija had shot and this was the alley and all that stuff. It was really fascinating like that. Well, this site does a lot of that. They, 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 it's devoted to the New York uh, of old, but also they will take films. I think Annie Hall is another one. There's several Woody Allen films where they've actually matched. They'll show you. There's, there's. I think there's a scene where I'm trying to think in Annie Hall where they're having the argument about the professor that she's sleeping with, mm-hmm. and they're walking through the streets, and right. the, and and these he matches buildings. So he goes to the site. He goes to the location. He or she, you know, and they photograph what it looks like today, and they actually match it. You can see where construction ended or where something else was built or where the the park bench was still there or has been removed is really very interesting mm, right there, and he does that with Broadway Danny Rose huh. or they do they do that I don't know who it is who's behind it but we should we, uh, we'll put the yeah, link in the Facebook group because that sounds really interesting absolutely it is it's engrossing I promise we'll you if again. your wife never wakes up again I promise you I will take you to any restaurant of your choice not to go off on a tangent but sometimes you and uh, Gilbert like to talk about those really cheapo uh, horror films those Italian horror horror films well a lot of those were shot in new york and there used to be italian post-apocalyptic films like bronx warriors and a lot of those old films oh, yeah were all yeah. shot you know basically what was left of manhattan i mean like it was just yep. you know the bronx and it looked yep. like wasteland like, yeah, it looked yeah like lebanon yeah yeah and i used to see them in movie theaters that are also gone oh yeah yeah sure so we're going to do a, a mini episode in the next couple of weeks about uh, movie theaters that have disappeared mm, nice oh, all those cinemas that turned into kind of uh, smut cinemas and a lot of the grindhouses, they actually started as theaters of the performing arts. Old yeah, vaudeville yeah. places. I mean, in Toronto, we used to have a place called the Metro that was like the last adult cinema in Toronto. And initially it started back, I think, in like 1929 or something, you know, as uh, the only place you could see uh, dancing girls and uh, guys going up and doing comedy routines. And that was like going right all the way back, like I said, to the 20s and 30s. Right. So and the town I grew up in in Long Island was called Mineola. Well, it still is. And there was a, it was the Mineola Movie Theater. And I found out doing a little research that Henry Fonda appeared there in, in, in a production of 12 Angry Men. Oh, wow. wow. So it was a it was a legit theater before oh. what they call an equity house, an equity right. theater before it became a movie theater. And that was true. That's true here of a lot of the theaters in New York, particularly the ones in Times Square. Right. But 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 many of those are gone. New York are always vanishing. So this is a real postcard, this film, you know, it's a real snapshot of an era that's, you know, unfortunately no longer around. We're uh, we're lucky enough to be able to see it. Mm. I think that's going to be true of all of Woody's films years from now because they're all shot in New York, although so most to of the major point. ones except in the 80s to a point. When you go back, I was watching Serpico to do research. We had Tony Roberts on the show. Mm. Uh, and I'm looking at these things. I'm looking at cigarette machines on a subway platform and candy oh, yeah. machines, which you also yeah. see in the taking of Pelham 123. And you yeah, really. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, Gilbert and I love to talk about movies shot in New York in the 60s and 70s and, and how much how much of the city becomes a character. Some people don't believe me when I'm telling them this, but I remember, you know, in New York City, like in seeing it even in films, they used to have billboards for cigarettes where you would see the smoke billowing out of a cigarette. In Times Square was famous. <laughs> yeah. So it's not a sleazy place anymore? Well, it had its, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't always safe, but it also had its charms. Right. S- since I moved back to New York in 2003, so so much was clear. There was a there was a great old coffee shop called the Empire Diner, which was one one of these one of these Carnegie Deli type places where you could go in and you could see Jackie Mason at a table holding court, and you Why? could see these old time character actors sitting around like a re- a real greasy spoon, but one with real history. And that's that's gone, and 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 the Ziegfeld closed, and Carnegie closed, and so so many landmarks. But it's happening in L.A. too. I'm hey, sure it's happening where you guys are. Starbucks makes great coffee, right, Frank? Uh, <laughs> I guess I was. I guess I'm. I'm. I belong to another era, gents. Me too. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> I think we all do. My friend Jim said something profound as I was lamenting the uh, Roseland went away, which was an old dance hall near the Ziegfeld. That's gone too. And I was. Yeah, the, I was the Roseland. I I actually saw a show at the Roseland. They used to put on rock concerts there. Yes, indeed, and roller skating. But it was a, but it was a dance. It was a it was a ballroom and a dance yep. hall in the. In its heyday, and my friend Jim Farrow said, "You know, he said 150 years ago, someone was standing where you're standing right now, lamenting what they tore down to build the loss of what they tore down to build that." <laughs> and I suppose that's true. Yeah, you know that 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 you know you everything is of its time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that doesn't make you feel any better, does it? Doesn't make me feel any better. No, no. Di- you know, diners are disappearing from New York. Places like the Carnegie Deli, diners, co- coffee shops are, are are vanishing in New York. Like I said. Since I came back 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I think four movie theaters have closed in my neighborhood alone. Jeez. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, well, that's another show. I like the looks of you, the Lord of you. All right, well, speaking of another show, we're going to finish off this one. So just final thoughts around the table, gents. A favorite moment for the film, a favorite memory associated with the film. We'll start with you, Frank. Oh, God, there are so many. I mean, I, I did the absurdity of meeting that actor in the superhero costume, you know, Ray, yes. Ray, hey, I'm Ray Webb, the actor. <laughs> I love when Sandy Barron is talking about Woody, about, excuse me, about Danny, how he's a landlocked Hebrew. <laughs> travels by water and they're on the ferry yeah yeah he says and it may have been improvised he says what color is his face it's it, it's khaki <laughs> the man has a khaki face that, 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 and, I, and I also love when he says uh, when he's trying to talk his way out of uh, out of the beating by the two brothers and he's talking about his uh, his un- his unattractive aunt but uh, you know take, take my cousin seal not not pretty like Tina at all she looked like something in a reptile house of a zoo who says it <laughs> She looked like she looked like something you pick up in a live bait store. <laughs> there are so many. Where do you begin? That seems that's the other running theme. What we were discussing before about how uh, Danny Ray's 
never quite gave up the act all throughout the film, as right. well as sort of asking people what their age or star sign was. He would always, in the course of regular conversation, like you said, take my art rose, or I'd like yeah. to tell you about Rabbi Pearlstein, or he's always talking about someone right. a, a little bit like uh, Gabe Cotter. I want to tell you about my uncle Moishi, or I want to tell you about... <laughs> well, it shows you the brilliance of the character, because, because this is all he knows. All he knows is being this guy and being an entertainer, and he thinks right. that he can use it to get to get by in any social situation. Right. Even, even when his life is threatened, he's going to tell right. him about his Uncle Menachem. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so wonderful. What I was saying about, you know, about him being in kind of a ability to control everything all the time. And then when he gets into situations where it's out, out of his control, he still tries to rein it in. You know, he's still no. trying to get a leash on it. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like It's tough. As Frank said, there's so much in this. It's just, it's just full of gold, this film. So many little jokes and one-liners. And I, I love, as we were just talking about, the how he's got a story for every situation to, you know, tell anybody. And I, mm. I think my favorite line is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I don't, remember it entirely but he says uh my uncle morris the famous diabetic from brooklyn (laughs) (laughs) and it's just his throwaway he's just he's you know he's on to the next thing what sums this film up because to me it's again he's talking about another relative of this of his who um whose philosophy for life is uh acceptance forgiveness and love Mm. yeah and I, i think that sums up the film that is what the film is about and perfect you know you can sum it up better than that i think so and i, I will say it's wonderful it, it's probably in my top three woody allen films nice i could watch this one over and over and over me too i wouldn't say there's a favorite scene for me but the one aspect that i really love about this film is that him as a manager he's basically trying to push all of his clients saying well he's this he's this he's this when they're really not but then when something is put on him and they're saying you're this he's like no i'm really not you know mm. like you're the guy you know you're you're, you're the lothario you're the guy stealing uh, the girl tina and it's like no 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 that's not me like you know everybody's seeing qualities in him and he's trying to deny it through the whole film it's kind of funny it's ironic how he's trying to you know bring out the other qualities in all the people he manages and kind of overextenuate that, but at the same time, he's just kind of really, you know, denying all these things in himself. One of the things that I sort of come away with is actually one of the sadder moments where he comes to his own sort of realization about something that he's done wrong. I've already gone and said that his character is a, something of an altruist, but to save his skin at one point, he goes and gives oh. the, the name of the character <laughs> Barney Dunn. Come on, tell us who you're bearing for, you little cheese eater. Cheese eater. I, I, I don't know exactly what it means, but. I, no, it's not good. Who, who are you bearing for? I'll, I'll put a bullet right between her eyes. Wait a minute, don't, don't do that. I, talk, talk. Daddy, don't. They'll kill him. I don't want to get my legs chopped off because I do a guy a favor. Come on, let's go. Who is it? All right, all right. You want to know who it is? Should I, you want, should I tell you who it is? Should I say? It's Barney Dunn. Who's Barney Dunn? Come on, who is it? Danny, you rat. Shut up. And so he tries to save his skin by giving the mafia guys the name of this other comedian who he says, oh, yeah, he's the real Lothario. He's the real guy. And um, <laughs> they, they end up putting him in hospital. And Danny, oh. Danny's the one guy who goes to visit him in hospital. And he's you know, bandaged up to the hilt. And he just walks away in the rain and is absolutely feeling traumatized that he's done. It's heartbreaking. The, it, it, yeah. is, it is a heartbreaking moment. You know, Lou Canova has 
gone and walked out on him, but he feels worse because he's done the wrong thing by this character. And this is a real film of humor and pathos. Bernie, when you said that this film is in your top three, I can't argue with that. I don't know if it is my number one, but yeah, certainly in my top three. I adore this film so much. It really is a five-star movie for me. And I I can't remember the last time he did a five-star. I mean, I can't give up on him because every once in a while he comes up with a film and think, oh, wow, you, you do have still something in you. And very rarely, though, is it the one that's the, the common perception. I remember, you know, however many years ago, people went gaga over Match Point. And i got to say, I hate Match Point. The first 30 minutes sort of play out like a weak Woody Allen film, and then the rest of it is not a Woody Allen film at all. That did that's nothing a little bit of misdemeanors revisited. Yeah, I guess, but that still looks like a Woody Allen film. But the last it's part of Match good. Point, no, nah, not at all. Not as good. I had such a bad experience after Scoop. And what was the other one? Uh, the one with Jason Biggs. Anything else? That didn't yeah. get released here. That didn't okay, even get released yeah. And I just thought, wow. I mean, at, that, at some point, it was just too painful to go back to the theater and watch him flail. Yeah. And I know I, I know, Midnight in Paris was a comeback, and so I, I enjoyed that. Did you guys yeah. see uh, Blue Doesn't Jasmine? What do you think of that? Hated it. I did, I, did, I did like Blue Jasmine, but I thought, again, you know, a minor. Yeah, you know, absolutely. A, a minor note. I, I think that, the, the, you know, he doesn't really have his fastball anymore i mean what 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 artist stays that vital and that sharp yeah. you know into his 80s right you look at wilder and you know but he had a hell of a run certainly did and yeah. for far longer than what a lot of people give him credit for i mean i think you've gone and mentioned on the show frank small time crooks which i think is a, another gem i really really I do love like that, that. Mm. yeah and elaine may is, is, is a hoot oh she's wonderful well we've like we've gone that. and discussed elaine may on this show with your suggestion of ishtar but i won't sort of bring that up again because it, it makes tim go into convulsions uh, <laughs> I do like small time crooks. I like Mighty Aphrodite, but it's few and far between. I didn't see Melinda and Melinda. The other one with huge. I didn't see. Uh, what's the other one with the magician? Uh, the one I, I didn't oh, the see. Curse, the curse of the Jade Scorpion. Didn't see. I didn't see that one. Yeah, not terrible. Yeah, you know they become like like almost like films made of, of minor short stories from his old books. They all become crimes and misdemeanors. <laughs> Literally. Um, well, that's the last great one for me. Okay. You know, yeah, I, I think I'd probably agree with that. Once once he hit the nineties it was slowly downhill and then fairly rapidly downhill as he got into the 2000s I think I think I, 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 would, I don't care for the musical either the one with Julia oh, Roberts everybody says I love you that was painful you know what is kind of amusing it's minor but Manhattan Murder Mystery I oh, love Manhattan Murder Mystery. That's, That's fantastic. Fun. And I, yeah. I like Bullets Over Broadway. I like that one very much. Yeah. 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 The lesson to be learned here is uh, if you only know Woody Allen from the obvious big name films, his repertoire is wide enough for you to sort of go and dig in and really just experiment with some of these films. I don't know. I mean, there are, there are some films which, you know, as I said, were, were pretty bad, but even some of the minor films still have a lot that are worth recommending. And you mentioned Manhattan well, Murder I- Mystery. And that, that's great i mean even if you take from it the uh, the lady from shanghai tribute late in the film yes i mean really a, a film that has alan alder and jellica yeah, houston yeah. And, and obviously diane keaton coming back and there's just round. comedy magic in that film and I've, i never remember his name my a, a great character actor who is who was in uh, the sopranos and he was in northern exposure uh, the you know uh, the, the, guy, the guy that turns out to be the killer that's right i just went to see city lights at the new york philharmonic and he was sitting behind me. Oh, get, oh, 
get him on the podcast, Frank. You need him. What's his name? He was on, he was on Mad About You with Paul Reiser. That's oh, his right. name yes, is yes. What the hell is uh, his name? Uh, Jerry Adler. Jerry Adler. Good, 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 solid workman like New York actor. As long as you're talking about Allen films that are great and unher and underrated, we have to mention Radio Days. I think it's underappreciated. Gil and I did an episode about it. That's right. That one is just about flawless, in and, my you know, opinion. Actually, I, I think the other thing that that film has in common with Broadway Danny Rose is you come away from it saying it's sweet. Yeah. I mean that as high praise. I know often you can say, you know, well, sweet is a good description for something that you consider light and fluffy. But no, I, I just think it just has a warmth and a heart to it that yes. um, that two yeah. films don't have. It's the Emmys. All right. So, look, we'll wrap up our uh, discussion of Broadway Danny Rose and Peripheral because this sort of was a really wonderful, all-encompassing conversation. I'm so glad that we had it. Before we go into uh, what next month's film is, Frank, thank you so much for being part of this. We're oh, of course, gents. Always fun. All grateful and looking forward to thinking what the next film that we can get you to come on the show will be. Okay. But, um, Tim, I think it's your pick for episode 41 next month. What'll it be? Well, I've been keeping this one in my pocket for good long while and i think it's about time roger corman did a little film with uh we've been talking about new york for the last couple of hours so uh next month we're going to do a film about the brothers from brooklyn rock and roll high school <laughs> finally <laughs> good lord oh, see if you can get alan arkish to come on and talk about it he's still around <laughs> Yeah, I would love well, to do that. Can you get us Alan Arkush, Frank? <laughs> I don't know the man. Oh, <laughs> oh God. But All right. I'm, I'm sure I can put you in touch with, this, with, the, with the right people. Looking forward immensely to talking a little Ramones, a little Riff Randall. I actually did this with uh, Dr. Zom on Love That Album, but I think I'm definitely ripe for a revisit. And this podcast, we have to do Rock and Roll High School. So immensely looking forward to do. that next month. Yeah. So just housekeeping, if, if you like the show you're listening to the show, please let people know that we exist. You can download us from seehear.podbean.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash seehearpodcast. Podcast at gmail.com is our email address. And uh, just come up with some more suggestions. We've actually taken all our requests for this year, but... You never Send know. Us some more. Throw it. Throw us <laughs> some more. You might think, oh, what a great film. So, like, you know, a couple of months ago, we discussed a fantastic film, Payday, which wasn't an official request, but you know, it sort of got snuck in by stealth by our good friend Rodrigo. So you never know. You might come up with something that we thought, why didn't we think of that? Fantastic. We're, you know, we're a friendly mob. Well, we'll invite you to come in and join us and discuss your choice of film. That's that's what we're here for. Music-related films is what we try to do. Uh, in case you hadn't got our brief until now. Also, all right, so I think on that note, we've had a great time. It's the MS. And, uh, and let me just say to you guys that I, I don't just see you guys doing podcasts and joining. <laughs> 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 Big thing for this show. You're going to make a beautiful dollar in this business, Marlon. <laughs> we got to smile. We got to be strong. Smile, Perennials. smile, yeah. strong. Oh, why isn't Thanks for inviting me on. Thank can you, I just Frank. say, Frank, yeah, thank you very much for coming on. I know you're a busy guy, and we really appreciate you taking time to uh, spend some oh, time yeah, with absolutely. us. Absolutely. Thank you well, very I, much. I, I appreciate being asked and uh, uh, we'll do it sometime down the road all right so uh, with that try not to eat too much otherwise you'll get a little bit of agita and uh, <laughs> we'll see we'll see you next month on see here in the rock and roll high school until then cheers 
My lovely, lovely woman, I hate to see her cry, but when I start to manja, I get the evil eye. My woolies getting stronger, how the hell would my go bar? Then I get it from my woman, check the box and ask you that. When I eat, he gets a treat like a console. He enjoys every meal, every bite that I steal. I should tell my goodbye in the fine zone. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 